Well, in case you are new with us, and we know we got new people every week, so we always got to say that, uh, and, and that's a good thing. But we've been reading through the Bible here all year long. Uh, we kind of made that a personal goal uh, for every person, and then what we do is we take some time every Sunday to just talk a little bit about what we've read uh, in the past week. And uh, so I'm going to continue today uh, looking at the New Testament book of Hebrews. Uh, second half of your Bible, maybe about two-thirds of the way through the New Testament, uh, is the book of Hebrews. And right from the start, I want to say we don't know for sure who wrote this letter or who wrote this epistle. Uh, Some scholars say that it was the Apostle Paul. Others believe it could have been one of Paul's co-workers, somebody like Barnabas, somebody like Apollos. Um, But Oxford professor of New Testament N.T. Wright agrees uh, that we can't really know for sure, but says this about the author. He says, perhaps the most we can say is that the author was probably a well-educated, second-generation, Greek-speaking Jewish Christian, thoroughly versed in the Septuagint, familiar with Greek philosophy, and at home both in Roman rhetorical techniques and Jewish interpretive traditions." Doesn't that clear it up for all of us, right? I mean, we all got a handle now of what's uh, going on here. But while we can't know for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, it doesn't change the importance of this writing because we know and believe, in fact, it's widely accepted that Hebrews is a divinely inspired writing from God originally directed to Jewish Christians that were living in Rome, likely in Rome, and with this powerful message and theme, just simply that Jesus is greater that Jesus is greater than all things, that he is above everyone, everywhere, and of all things. He is God's promised Messiah. He is the one who God sent to rescue us from our sins, to restore us back into a relationship with God. And so for those reasons alone, and what the author is going to say over and over again is that Jesus is worthy of all of our worship. He is worthy of all of our trust, everything that we do, and certainly our generosity. Now, why was that an important message for Jewish Christians living in Rome? first century world, things were getting tough. Uh, Life was hard. It was complicated. These Christians were being harassed for their faith. And as New Testament professor William Lane explains, their faith in Jesus had proven to not be a worldly advantage for them, but had rather set them up for persecution and the loss of property, privilege, and would possibly even cost them their lives. And so, which leads to another message or kind of another continuing theme uh, through the book of Hebrews. And it's this, that the writer's going to say over and over again that Jesus is greater but he's going to encourage them by saying to them, hey, no matter what you go through, no matter how difficult it gets, you just hang on to Jesus and don't let go. You hang on to him through everything that comes your way, the unexpected, the expected, whatever you see, whatever you've got to go through, you hang on to Jesus and don't let go. I remember learning to water ski first time. I was in the boat with my buddy. He had some experience in skiing. He's the guy driving the boat, his boat. I was asking him a whole bunch of questions, all right, before I got out in the water. Like, how do I position myself and get my skis up out of the water? What do I do with my knees? You know, when I come up out of the water, what does all that look like? He finally got tired of trying to explain it to me and says, I don't know what to tell you. When the boat starts going, just hang on to the rope and don't let go of it, all right? Like, uh, that was his best advice for me. That's the message the writer has for these Christians, that Jesus is greater, that he's the most important person in your life, that he's everything that you need. And again, I know life is hard, and honestly, it's going to get more difficult, but trust me, Jesus is worth it. No matter what you face, no matter what you go through, you hang on to Jesus and don't let go of him. And what was true for the Christians living then is true for you and me too. 
as we live in a world that grows more and more opposed to the things of Jesus. And so the message of this book, the, the message of this writer really is for you and me too, that no matter what you go through, uh, no matter what you face, the expected, the unexpected, no matter how hard life gets or confusing it may be, you don't be afraid. You hang on to Jesus and hold on to him with all of your life. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1 if you haven't already. Uh, we're going to skip around today and look at a number of different passages to just kind of help get a basic understanding uh, of these themes in the book of Hebrews. And let's pick it up in chapter 1, verse 1. Again, the writer, he opens his letter this way. He says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various Ways. And so right away, the author refers back to Israel's history, saying that from the beginning of time, that God, uh, occurrence after occurrence, you know, spoke to humanity in a variety of different ways. If you read through the Old Testament at all with us this year, uh, you can remember that God used visions and dreams and angels and burning bushes and, and prophets and even a talking donkey you know, to, to communicate his will and his desire, his vision for the people. But in verse 2, we read, all right, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. Basically, God now speaks to us through his son, Jesus Christ, uh, and that Jesus is not simply a word from God, but as John chapter one says, Jesus is the word of God, that he is heir of all things, as the writer says, that Jesus alone made the universe. I was reading the other day that our solar system, all right, is something like 7.5 billion miles wide, give or take a few miles, all right? Uh, 7.5 billion miles. And I found this fascinating. Like, suppose you could drive a car that distance, all right, and cover the, the expanse of our, our solar system. At, at a speed of 65 miles per hour, it would take approximately 13,000 years to cover that distance, all right? Now, consider this. The Milky Way galaxy, which is the galaxy that our solar system is a part of, all right, again, a part of the Milky Way galaxy, consists of at least 100 billion planets, all right, add to that scientists estimate that the Milky Way galaxy is one of 100 billion galaxies in the universe, and others argue that it could be double that amount. And Jesus, according to the writer, created all of it. All right, he created the universe, the entire universe. I fixed a dripping faucet the other day and was pretty proud of it. All right, what have you done lately? All right, Jesus made all things. All right, he created the universe. He is greater. And the writer continues in verse three that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things. These sound kind of like some of the songs we've been singing today by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And we talked about this a few weeks ago as we studied through Philippians and Colossians together. The language here is similar to what we looked at all right, in Philippians and Colossians and one of the reasons why many people believe that the Apostle Paul actually wrote this letter. But with his words, the writer outlines his case for why Jesus is superior, why he's greater. He talks about the radiance, Jesus being the radiance of God's glory. 
glory, the exact representation, sustaining all things, that Jesus provided purification for sins, and then this interesting phrase, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And the writer's going to say this over and over again in different places. We'll talk about what that means in, in just a moment. But here's the thing. As much as the writer of Hebrews wants to remind Christians living then and today about how Jesus, how great Jesus is because he is indeed God, he also wants to draw attention to one of the great mysteries of our faith. And the writer addresses this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, when he writes, For this reason he, and he's talking about Jesus here, had to be made like them, that's you and me, all right, that's us, fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. All right, this right here is something that really smart people, like a lot smarter than, than me, call this the hypostatic union. All right, it's this, this understanding, all right, that Jesus came to earth as a baby and he was fully God and fully human at the very same time. It's why we will sometimes say that Jesus is God in the flesh. And it's so important that we get our minds around this, or at least try to as much as we can. Because for so many of us, we often, when we think of Jesus, we think of Jesus in the same way that we think of Captain America, or we think of Jesus in the same way that we think of Captain Marvel. We see Jesus as more of a superhero, or at least superhuman, God with a mask on, and we fail to consider and understand the importance of his humanity. And why is his humanity important? Well, if Jesus was only divine, can he really understand the things that we go through in this world? And if he's a superhero, can he relate with our pain, our challenges, and our struggles, at least for us in a very personal way? Jesus is fully God, no doubt about it, nothing less. But in a way that only God could orchestrate, he became fully human too which means that he came to earth as a baby and likely didn't sleep through the night. In fact, when you sing the song Away in a Manger this month and you know the words, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes, I don't want to spoil your Christmas traditions, but it probably ain't true, all right? Like Jesus probably did cry in the night. He was fully human, which means he got a runny nose, all right? Because he was a fully hum human, he, 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 he fussed when he cut teeth. Moms, he most likely blew out his diaper, you know, when they put his jammies on him just a couple of minutes, you know, before bed. I mean, Jesus had to learn to crawl. He had to learn to walk and, and talk. And as the gospel writer Luke explains, Jesus would grow up in wisdom and stature. He got hungry and thirsty. He was tired and slept. There were times when he celebrated this, this with his disciples, and there were times that he, he wept with them. Jesus got angry as he faced many of the same things that you and I face each day, but he never sinned. There was not an ounce of sin in his life. And right before he was arrested, Jesus admitted to his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. That's about as human as it can get. And I'm guessing that we could all point to a time in life where we felt similar things, where we've been so desperate, we've been so hurting for something, for someone. I mean, maybe some of you would describe even right now what you feel as something similar to that. But his existence as a human didn't end there. As Jesus went to the cross, his humanity was put on full display for others to see as Jesus was beaten and whipped mercilessly. He, he was harassed 
and humiliated publicly. His hands and feet were stretched out on a rugged wooden cross and nailed to the beams. After several hours of agony, he died, just like every other human that has ever lived, and he was buried in a tomb, but not for very long. Because God raised him from the dead and he's alive today. And why in the world would Jesus put himself through all of that? Look at 2.14 and 15 again. The writer says, since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, he, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Why did Jesus go through what he went through for us? Well, a couple of things. Number one, his humanity means he understands. And because he understands, I think Jesus becomes an even greater model and example for how we live each and every day how we go through life. But here's something else about him. Because he became human and endured many of the things that we do, I find personally that Jesus becomes even more approachable. That because he understands, like I'm drawn to him, I'm comforted by him in some very special ways, maybe ways that you have experienced in your own life and in your own walk with the Lord too. And I'll just say this. There, there is so much to gain from studying the life of Jesus to keep coming back to his life. And, and just a heads up, as we've been reading through the Bible together all of this year, we're going to change it up a little bit come January and do something completely different as we kind of slow down. And what we're going to do is we're going to spend most of next year actually studying and reading through the book of John. All right, just one book together. We're going to start right away the first Sunday in January, and we're going to invite you to read through John with us at a much slower pace, all right, than what it takes to read through the entire Bible. We're just going to week after week work our ourselves through the the verses and the chapters of John, studying the life of Jesus, studying his words and his actions and why he did the things that he did, and just continuously asking, okay, what's this mean for today? All right, what's this mean for tomorrow? What's this mean for what I'm going through right now? And and maybe for some of you, if if you're new to all of this, if you're curious about Jesus, if you've always wondered, I just I'd like to know more about Jesus. This is just a great invitation for you to jump in with us as we head into 2022. Because again, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the life of Jesus. And our prayer is this: we want to grow in our faith together. All right, each of us grow in our faith and our understanding of the Lord. We want to grow as disciples. All right, we want what we're learning to translate into action, and we want to grow as a church family. All right, we want to grow together as a church family. Again, that's all coming up starting January 1. We'll talk about that again over the next couple of weeks. But one more thing about his humanity, and that is number three, because Jesus shared in our humanity, his death means that he has freed us from things like sin and, and pain and, and fear, all right, and certainly this, this punishment of sin and death. Look at the writer says in Hebrews 2, verse 17. He says, for this reason, Jesus had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Those are two words the writer uses over and over again. We'll talk about those in just a second as well. But a faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, that word atonement means a payment for a wrong or for an injury. And in this case, the wrong is our sin against God, and the payment is a perfect sacrifice. And because Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life, he was and is 
the perfect sacrifice to pay for the penalty of our sins. And in Hebrews 4.15, we learn why this idea of Jesus being our atonement for, for sin is so important to what we believe. Again, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. I want to slow down there for just a second because this is so important, again, to what we believe uh, as Christ followers. In his humanity, Jesus was tempted in every way, just like you and I are, but he never sinned. He never sinned, which means he never talked back to his parents. Uh, it means that he never threw a punch. Uh, Jesus never posted anything nasty on social media probably block some people. I could see Jesus blocking some people from time to time, all right? Uh, he didn't give in to lust. He didn't give in to or act out in hate or pride. He never gave in to temptation, never. He never sinned against God. So as the writer says, so that in spite of the pains, in spite of the sufferings and temptations of this life, his death could be a perfect sacrifice for our sins and free us from the fear of death. This is why we call the news of Jesus the good news. All right, this, the word gospel, it just simply means good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. Like it changes everything. I mean, it's why we believe here that Jesus is our reason for hope. You know, the, the good news of Jesus is why we act differently. It's why we live differently and why we love people the way that we do. And those of us that follow Jesus, like we hear this good news and maybe this is where you are today and we're reminded like this is it. Like, this is the foundation of our faith. Like, this is what I'm building my life upon. This is why we're doing the things that we're doing. Like, it all begins and ends with the good news of Jesus Christ. But I want to ask you an important question today. How is the good news of Jesus Christ influencing the way you think and the way you live and the way you respond? Remember, this letter was likely written to a group of Christians who were being harassed and persecuted for their faith and their beliefs. And the, the writer of Hebrews, he knew that he needed to remind them of the good news. Like he had to get them back to thinking about the good news again. And so look at how he encourages them in verse 14, if you back up a verse. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us grab hold of Jesus, all right? Let us hold on to him firmly. Let's hold firmly to the faith we Profess. Now, as it turns out, this idea of faith is also another important idea all throughout the book of Hebrews. In fact, the word faith is used something like 40 times in 13 chapters. And the longest chapter in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, alone the word faith is used 25 times, which is why chapter 11 is sometimes referred to as the hall of faith. And what do we mean by faith? Again, what's the writer wanting us to see? What's God wanting us to see when it comes to faith? Well, Tim Mackey who is the teacher at the Bible Project. If you've watched any of the Bible Project videos at all, you've heard Tim Mackey's voice. He points out that when we hear the English word faith, like this is for us today, we tend to think of it more as a mental activity. 
That, that faith is about what goes on in my mind. You know, it's the right thoughts. It's believing the right things. And, and, and we might conclude that that's enough, that that alone's enough, that it's enough to believe it, all right, and, and to think it. But that wasn't the definition of faith that the author of Hebrews gives us. Because if you skip over to Hebrews chapter 11, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, we get a definition of faith. The writer says this, Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. That faith basically is confidence in what has happened, all right, and what we hope will be. You know, it, it again, it is what we believe. This is an important part of faith. It's the assurance of things that we can't see yet. But recently I learned that the word confidence can also be translated as substance, and the word assurance can also be translated as evidence. In fact, in the King James Version of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, uh, again, it's translated this way, that faith is the substance of the things that we hope for and the evidence of things we do not see. The bottom line is this, that faith is so much more than a mental activity, that true faith has substance. True faith has legs to it. It has an active side. It grabs hold of what is hoped for, and then it translates into a physical response from people. Maybe it helps to think of faith like this, that faith is an experience that shapes what we believe to be true, for sure, and at the very same time fuels the way we live out obedience to God. That it's what we believe, but that it translates into action. There's a transformational side of faith. Let me give you an example of what this looks like. Here at Genesis, again, we've been talking about this for the last year and a half. We believe that Jesus is greater than all things, that he died and he rose from the dead, that he offers his life, he offers his forgiveness and hope for everyone. But do you know what? And I've been guilty of this. There are, there are far too many people today. There are far too many Christians out there, far too many so-called Christians that know the right answers we got the information, but there's not a lot of evidence on the outside. And what I think the writer is saying is that true faith says this, that because of what I believe that Jesus has done for me and what I believe and see that he can do for others, like I can't hold that in. That has to get out. That has to change the way that I live, the way that I, I see things. I, I want what Jesus has done for me to be seen and experienced by others. I think generosity is a great example of this kind of faith at work in us. That generosity says, I've received and, and now I give. Because of what I received, I, I have to give. I, I want to I try and give to the same degree that God has given to me. I want to put my faith in action. And so by giving, I'm demonstrating what I believe is most important. I give so that others may also potentially know the powerful love of Christ that is changing and transforming my life forever. And if you keep reading Hebrews chapter 11, you discover that this is the point the writer is wanting to make to his audience when it comes to faith because, again, says faith is confidence. Faith is, is assurance, all right? Faith is evidence. Faith is substance in what we hope for. 
for, an assurance about what we do not see. And then he adds, this is what the ancients were commended for. Now, who are the ancients? Well, if you read in chapter 11, all right, you'll discover one example after another of men and women and students, people just like us, individuals like Noah and Rahab and Abraham and Moses. They're, they're often referred to as the heroes of the faith. And the reason why these people are considered heroes of the faith isn't because of what they thought about faith. All right, they're not in chapter 11 because of the mental work they did when it comes to faith, but it was their actions, all right? It was the way they lived out that faith. Their faith in God had substance to it. There was evidence in their life. Their faith resulted in faithful obedience to God in spite of the difficult circumstances they faced. And listen to how Hebrews chapter 11 ends, and you should read everything in between on your own, but he ends chapter 11 this way. These were all... All right, commended. People like Moses and Noah and Rahab and Abraham for their faith. Now, something really interesting. Yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Now, what would God have promised to these ancient heroes of the faith that they didn't receive or experience in their lives but has been made known to us today? Two letters, B, C. Before Christ, they lived in the day and age where God had promised to send his Messiah, Jesus, to rescue from the world from sin. And the people that lived before Jesus was born lived in faith that God would keep his promise and send his son. And that promise alone fueled their faith. And now those of us that live after Jesus was born, how much more? Should what has already happened, how should that not fuel our faith, our confidence, our actions, our living in even greater ways? I once heard someone say that Christians should be the most joy-filled people on the planet. I got to confess that I'm not always a great reflection of that. But isn't it true that when we get our minds around what Jesus has already accomplished for us, and the promises of still what's to come, like those truths should result in action and transformation because Jesus changes everything. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12 and let's bring this to a close. The writer says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There were a couple of phrases that I pointed out just a moment ago that I want to end with. Hebrews refers to Jesus as our high priest. And then on more than one occasion talks about how Jesus as the high priest has sat down. Quick lesson, in Jewish culture, the high priest was responsible for offering all of the sacrifices for sin in the tabernacle and eventually in the temple. And there was a saying that the high priest never sat down. And why was that the case? Well, the work never ended. All right, every sacrifice offered was only a temporary band-aid to the problem of pain and sin, and so the high priest's work was never finished. What's the writer of Hebrews saying here then? Jesus is the better, perfect 
final high priest who offered his life as a sacrifice once, forever, and always. And how important and perfect was that sacrifice? Well, God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus ascended into heaven. And what did Jesus do? What does the text say? Jesus sat down. And not because he was tired. No, he sat down because the work is finished. Sin is defeated. Victory is ours for those of us who are in Jesus Christ. And what's our response? Well, back to Hebrews 12, verse 1, one more time. The writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I know that this past year has been a difficult year for so many people, mentally, relationally, emotionally. You've got people in your life that are hurting. You've got people that live in your home right now that are hurting. Some of you, if you were honest today, would say, I'm hurting. I'm struggling. And maybe this time of the year with Thanksgiving and Christmas and the new year just a few weeks away makes it all even more difficult. But what if today, what if this Christmas, you prayed and asked God to do something new in your heart, to renew something in you that's been lost, to revitalize something that maybe has been taken away, to give you eyes to see what you were once able to see, to give you eyes to see again or for the first time or the first time in a long time? but that God would do something in you or begin something in you today that's new, that's fresh, that increases your faith. Think about this. The ancients put their confidence in the promise that a Messiah would come, and this fueled their faith. You and me, we live on the other side of the promise because 2,000 years ago, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, and he lived and he died and he rose from the dead And now he offers his life and his hope and healing and faith to all people. This world may be broken, but Jesus is making all things new. And he will come again. And so today, this Christmas, no matter what you face or what you're going through, can I just encourage you this morning to reach out and to grab hold of Jesus and don't let go. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for your powerful word and for your truth that reminds us of what's most important, what really matters, and everything that we need. We thank you for Jesus Christ, your son, the King of kings and Lord of lords that you sent to this earth, who lived and died and rose from the dead, who has sat down, he is seated in heaven because the work is finished and life and forgiveness are available to all people. And for those of us that are here today, that have trusted you and have received that life, but maybe that life has been dwindling away. Would you renew our faith today or beginning today? Would you begin a new work in us, Lord? 
to remind us of your great love and your great life, that Jesus is greater than all things. Give us faith to believe today. And Father, I pray for those as well that are here that maybe never have trusted Jesus Christ with their life. They want to. They're just trying to see it. They're trying to put the pieces together. There's healing in their life that needs to happen. There's hurt that needs to be overcome. Lord, would you do something special today in each life and give us eyes to see and faith to believe and let that faith translate into action. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.